0: Hello, and welcome to the Focal Therapy Clinic. My name is Claire Delmar, and in this audio series, I'm going to introduce you to some issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Earlier this year, prostate cancer was acknowledged as the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. In the fourth of our series, I'm speaking with Alan Doherty one of the UK's most renowned prostate cancer specialists and clinical director at the Birmingham Prostate Clinic. Alan has completed one of the largest caseloads of prostatectomies in the UK, undertaking more than 3,000 operations. He's recognized for his expertise in nerve-sparing techniques, reducing the risk of erectile dysfunction and incontinence from prostate cancer surgery, and has published extensive results from his nerve-sparing procedures. Recently, he was voted one of the UK's top 10 prostate cancer specialists in a national poll of consultant neurologists published in the Daily Mail. Alan, thanks for joining me. Hi, Claire. Wonderful to have you on, um, on our audio series. Um, I'm going to dive right in um, with a little bit of irony. I mean, having just described you as a leader and innovator in radical prostatectomies and other so-called invasive procedures. It's, it's, it's kind of amusing that I've asked you to chat with me today about non-invasive procedures like focal therapy and active surveillance. So can you, can you tell me how you came to embrace focal therapy into the treatments that you offer your patients?
1: Well, it's a, it's a really good question, good point. Um, I think prostate cancer has such a multitude of different pathways and patients differ in how they value various outcomes. And it's not For me as a clinician to just offer one form of treatment is for me to offer a a range of treatments which will be uh, appropriate to the patient and their problem. So it would seem wrong to me to just be a specialist in one thing. And I think focal therapies have some advantages, but also some disadvantages.
0: And why has focal therapy in your practice become more popular, if, if I could use that word? But do correct me if that's not the right word.
1: I think it's because vocal therapies, particularly HIFU, which stands for High Intensity Focus Ultrasound, is evolving and we're getting a better understanding of how it works and how we can uh, deliver it and and the benefits and uh, and the risks involved. So my patients are now able to perhaps understand what the advantages and limitations are a bit better. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been doing HIFU for, um, well, gosh, must be seven or eight years that uh, we've been I've been involved in hypo. And it, initially, I think uh, the treatment was offered to perhaps too broad a spectrum of people. It mm-hmm. was before the day of MRI scanning and we, when we can now perhaps better identify where the cancer is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we used to treat the whole gland um, and... I think the disadvantage of that was that it did actually cause quite a few problems. So the early use of HIFU was perhaps not quite as good as we seem to have it now. Mm-hmm. So my enthusiasm is, has increased as we've got better understanding it.
0: So better imaging has clearly led to, to better diagnostics and we can now see where prostate cancer lesions are and, and even measure how aggressive they are, is that correct?
1: Well, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think the people who are enthusiasts of focal therapy put a lot of value on the MRI scan. Of course, it's got to be a good MRI scan and there are various levels of quality to an MRI scan. They, they assume that the machine is the machine and the answer is the answer. I think a, a really high quality MRI scan where you can identify the, the higher grade cancer it uh, does open up this whole chapter of focal therapy to allow it to sort of a pinpoint destruction of the cancer and yet not causing a lot of collateral damage, which is what essentially gives the side effects to most treatments. So as well as opening up for focal therapy, it, it the better the
0: MRI, the better we can see this cancer, it also opens up opportunities for active surveillance. Does doesn't that mean now that it's a real option for some men and that you know we could literally watch them or survey them as the term well, that, suggests that's tr- regularly and closely.
1: Well that's very true uh, and yet you can also argue that if you have a treatment such as HIFU with very little uh, comorbidity then why just watch a cancer go from a situation where it's not particularly dangerous to one where it is dangerous when you could alter the natural history and at worst delay the progression or at best cure them um, okay. so uh, and i think people forget with active surveillance the monitoring does involve quite a, a lot of you know the reason it's called active surveillance is because it's an active process you, you have regular psa blood tests which of course can be stressful if the psa is going up you have numerous mri scans which can be expensive and then sometimes you need repeat biopsies and so there is a, a strong argument that you know instead of putting people on active surveillance where well, you should consider treating the abnormal area. I think if the MRI scan picks up an abnormality, you, you think, well, well, why not treat that abnormality? I can see why if the treatments available are potentially going to make your life miserable, that you might want to just monitor it. But if the treatments don't do that, then you know, why not have it treated? We
0: often find that patients come to us who are on active surveillance and it, it kind of comes to them a bit late in the game that the active, as you suggest, is, is, is on their part, as well as the
1: clinician. Well, and I think people forget with active surveillance that, you know, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for it to go from a curable to an incurable cancer? People think that we have this amazing ability to know when that's going to happen. Well, mm. we don't. It's a, it's a probabilities game. You go from a, a very high likelihood of being cured to a lower probability of being cured. The question is, what percentage are you comfortable with? Are you comfortable with a 90% chance of being cured? Are you comfortable with a 70% chance? So in other words, the higher the PSA goes, the lower the likelihood of you being cured is. So it's all very well and good being monitored, but you have to understand the consequences of the monitoring and that the fact that it isn't quite as scientific as you might think. You know, it, This is very much a looking at a window of curability which is closing the longer you monitor it for now that doesn't mean that you necessarily will die of prostate cancer if you miss the window of of cure because we can control cancers very well with hormone treatments radiotherapy chemotherapy and and lots of new treatments that are coming out so you know when people say you're not going to die of prostate cancer if you go on to active surveillance. And that's probably true, but you may end up having lifelong treatments, which had you gone for a curative treatment, that wouldn't be the case.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so, you know, while you have this technology to spy literally on the cancer, there's a lot of activity and and other options that needs to be considered. Um, Some people often have told us too that one of the challenges they face under active surveillance are are more behavioral or psychological. Can you comment on that?
1: Oh, yes, very much so. I, I think the average time people can stomach uh, active surveillance is about two years. Uh, you know, y- y- it's really? Have there been studies on that, or is that no, your it, observation? It, well, observation, but also from studies. So if you look at studies like the PROTECT trial, it's within the, the first two years that you tend to get that, uh, that change. It's around two years where people just seem to have had enough of it, and they say, oh, fair enough, you know, let's have treatment. Um, hmm. So it's, it's, I suppose it's more observational than anything else. But c- certainly in the studies I've been involved with, I'm not surprised seeing patients at about two years say enough's enough and the PSA's gone up and it's gone into my head. PSAs tend to fluctuate up and down and so you know sometimes people get the sort of relief that the PSA's gone down a bit or was stable but it, if the PSA doesn't and it's sort of slowly climbing up which it tends to do over a two-year period um, you know people just sort of say enough's enough let's have treatment.
0: So like let's just assume this two-year period is an average of sorts would you say that there's a risk if you wait two years that you know, the curative treatment that you mentioned might have to be more invasive. Is that something to warn
1: um, those not, patients on? Yeah, not only more invasive, but also more prolonged uh, in that you've missed the opportunity to go for a curative intervention, and instead you, you're going for a sort of controlling uh, intervention. And of course, they have never come across a cancer ever that's gone away, um, and it tends to grow slowly. And the, the question is, what's the speed of progression? And so and nobody knows that for sure. So every now and then you're going to have someone who you thought was going to progress slowly, who progresses more aggressively. Mm. Uh, and that's where this window of curability starts to close in terms of percentage likelihood of cure.
0: So you will suggest to patients that focal therapy is a real alternative for active surveillance?
1: That's very much my philosophy, which is if you are prepared to monitor it, then you know, why wouldn't you want to go for a treatment that could potentially cure you and almost certainly will delay the progression of it uh, in that if you kill the majority of it, that's surely going to be helpful.
0: Mm -hmm. And do most of your patients agree with that and and take that
1: action? Most of my patients will sort of get that. There are patients who worry about high food, partly because it's not spreadly available. And I think, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, when it was used Probably incorrectly and in, and in too widespread a fashion, um, it's made some people wary. Certainly other urologists are a little bit wary of it. And I think patients pick up on that. But I think the tide's changed. I think because of better imaging, as we said at the beginning, HIFU is going to become a bigger player.
0: So a slight um, shift from this, but picking up on, on this whole idea of having to wait and you know the, the psychological and the, the, the clinical aspects of that. How have the delays in the diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer based on COVID-19 in the last few months. How, how has, have those delays impacted your practice and your patients' treatment?
1: I think uh, there are patients who were halfway along the diagnostic pathway and it all suddenly came to an end. And, and in that group, you know, you, I've seen patients who have really got quite stressed by it because they, they didn't get to the stage where we were able to tell them whether this was an aggressive tumor or not. Uh, or if they did have an MRI scan and it suggested that it was aggressive, they weren't able to go and have the biopsies to confirm it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's interesting is that a lot of patients won't have had their PSA blood tests. And now, as you know, PSA is the way that we assess the risk of having prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. It's, a sort of mm-hmm. a, it's a prostate health check in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the charities that used to do the PSA measurements, the GPs that would have done it as part of the sort of symptoms assessment, mm-hmm. and then the sort of, you know, the Bupa health checks or the health assessments, they haven't been done. So there are probably a, a people who just don't even know they've got a high PSA uh, who will no doubt be found in the next few, few months or so. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that's quite a big cohort of people. So there's definitely had a big effect, uh, the COVID, and it's, and it's ongoing because the NHS is catching up now And I think the whole process can be expensive for a self funder if you include MRI scanning and biopsies and the like.
0: So are you optimistic that the NHS will be able to pick up some of this, or how would you advise somebody listening to this who has an early stage diagnosis and has been delayed?
1: First of all, I think these sorts of interviews are really helpful to patients to sort of understand the issues, and I think you've got to understand... The issues and you've got to be very clear in what questions you're trying to ask when when you have a PSA blood test, you know, what, what is it you want to know? Uh-huh. Uh, and then when you have an MRI scan, well how are you going to act on it? And uh-huh. then when you have a biopsy, what treatment are you likely to have or not have? I mean, if you think about it, the active surveillance group shouldn't really exist because you know if you have an MRI scan that Is normal uh, you know why are we biopsying them and if a patient um, is found to have a cancer and then you say we'll leave it alone well again that doesn't make sense because before you biopsy them you should say to them what are you going to do if I find a cancer and you know you say the likelihood is if I find a cancer with a normal MRI scan is that it's not going to be an aggressive one so Mm -hmm. why am I biopsying you so I I think uh, patients really need to be first of all clear on on what they're asking and and what they're going to find but if they decide that they do want to proceed am I optimistic that the NHS will catch up? Well, I I have found in my experience that the NHS will not tend to have specialists who do nothing else but report MRI scans. So the quality of their MRIs is variable. It's very hard to put value on it. And then when they do the biopsies, they don't necessarily do them in a way that I would say minimizes false negatives. Uh I think they're more obsessed about doing it in a way that is quick, easy. uh, And for example, there are different ways in taking boxes. You can do it through, through the perineum, but through one or two holes rather than through 20 holes, you know. So, and I think nobody's perhaps looking at the efficacy of the interventions and, and mm. what are they trying to find. So yes, I think uh, patients need to ask that question to their urologist saying, you know, how do you know the MRI scans up to scratch? You know, will uh-huh. it serve my purpose?
0: It's almost like a supply chain, you know, audit.
1: <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, because it, it, there
0: are these key stages as you say that have you know a massive impact on the sequential stage correct.
1: absolutely right people often get to the end of the pathway without even thinking about what they're going to do with the information or how valid the information is
0: alan i really want to thank you for your insights i think this has been incredibly helpful certainly for me but um, especially for our patients who are listening if you'd like a consultation with alan doherty please contact us at the focal therapy clinic and if you'd like to learn more about focal therapy and engage with patients who have chosen to undergo focal therapy instead of active surveillance, please visit our website at www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. And from me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.